time for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks and designated driver. If this is your first trip of a lifetime with us or you've been aboard before, it falls to me to confirm we're an eclectic, eccentric, freewheeling but big thinking show for everybody. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading or listening along to the ongoing adventures of our hero Doctor Who, we talk about it all on this show. All views are encouraged and we'll even try and throw in a few laughs along the way. Just hold tight and everything will be fine when you step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. Yes, and whether you're in N-Space or E-Space, you're welcome to this particular edition of the show. The entire Hooniverse is ours to roam and this time I'm very much Adric. <laughs> to the figure of the of the Doctor, as embodied by my good friend Simon Horton. <laughs> well, you're adjective. Well, you know that's 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 brave, Dan. That's very brave. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the one with the burgundy scarf. I am. I should be wearing it, shouldn't I? I should be wearing my burgundy scarf today for reasons that will become apparent. Oh. Really need that burgundy scarf. This is a special edition of the show, isn't it? Mm. Special in more ways than one. I don't think I ever believe that we would be having the conversation that we're about to bring to you now. It's almost like it comes from another dimension. You're not going to believe your ears. But Simon, when I told you that this was even possible, yeah. you, were, you were just delighted. You couldn't wait to get started. Yeah, no, I, I leapt on this one uh, very, very excitedly. As soon as we kind of sort of banded this one around as a possibility, I was straight there. I was straight there. It's... Um, this is something that I, I honestly think if my 12-year-old self back in 1981 would be having the kind of conversation that we are about to have, I just, you know, I, I don't think I would have believed myself because this is, you know, this is Nirvana for me, this is. Yes, it's that good, everybody, because, yeah, we spend all of time and space, don't we, talking about the, the present, the future and the past of Doctor Who. We clock it all. We clock the mechanics of it as a piece of entertainment. But what we wanted to get to the bottom of here was how it may feel to have uh, contributed to all of that. To have played in that sandpit, if you like, as part of a career and a creative pathway. Where does it ultimately land sort of in context with the rest of it? But yeah, this time Simon and I are joined by photographer, artist, writer and filmmaker Paul Joyce. Now Paul was responsible in 1980 for four of the most visually arresting episodes in Doctor Who's entire history and they still beguile and provoke us viewers all these decades on, don't they Simon? Oh, they do. Uh, they still cause controversy within fandom. People still talk about it. The truth of it is, Warriors Gate is a story that's never, ever been forgotten by the fans. No. Um, I, I, I suppose maybe we could sort of say it's a kind of love it or loathe it sort of story. I don't know. It's certainly something that I love and loved ever since I first saw it, as I say, as a 12-year-old in, in 1981. And I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. But that didn't matter because, for me, this... Warriors Gate I saw at, at exactly the same point in my life really I fell in love with 2001 A Space Odyssey as a 12 year old and I didn't understand that either and so for me 
Warriors Gate is very much the kind of 2001 of Doctor Who. It, for me, it doesn't matter that you don't necessarily understand it. It's about the package as a whole. As you say, beguiling is the perfect word for it, really. It's, yeah. it's about the imagery. It's about the set pieces. It's about the characters. It's about the thoughts that it, that it just sets up in your brain. It gets you thinking in the way that uh, a, lot of, a lot of television does, doesn't do. A lot of Doctor Who stories don't necessarily do. They work on one dimension. As much as, as much as we as much as we love them, so yes, Paul Joyce was yeah. the director of these four episodes that made up the fifth story in season eighteen of Doctor Who, Warriors Gate. But it is just one chapter of a creative story that's about to be celebrated in a retrospective of his work, which includes uh, photo photographing, sorry, famous faces, as well as his own paintings and various portfolios and and collections. But before we get into all of that. I have to remind you that each and every edition of our show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice if you know where to look. And there'll be some more about that a little bit later on, as well as a cut across to the matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast Network for a word about all the other cult conversations across all those other fictional universes that we love spending time in so much on the podcasts over there. Just one more thing, everybody. I must advise there's some colourful language in our conversation that may not be suitable for younger viewers. Now, though, I think that we're as ready as we'll ever be, Simon, to meet a real enigma in the history of Doctor Who, a real one-off. It's the one and only Mr Paul Joyce. Lovely to be with you. Yes, yeah, so Paul, I've just rewatched Warriors Gate over the last week or so for the uh, for the umpteenth time <coughs> in preparation for speaking, and I Ooh. found it as curious and as captivating as ever. But when did you last watch it yourself, and do you revisit your old material very often? I watched it last right through at the final edit in probably 1980. What? <laughs> You've never seen it since? <laughs> I have a Blu-ray recorder and I've never used it and I haven't watched it, but I understand it looks all right. I mean, my great regret was um, it took them about 20 years to put it out on VHS. You couldn't see it. It was, it was, it yeah. just disappeared. Then it w went on to DVD but at no point was I ever invited in to supervise. I mean, we did a director's commentary for the first D DVD. Then nothing. And there are special effects and things and sounds and all sorts that I w could tidy up if I was given the chance, you know. Well, if you're Martin Scorsese. <laughs> oh, Marty, come in. Yes, yes. Oh, you don't like that. Yeah, OK. Oh, no. Uh, a bit louder for Marty. Paul Joyce, get out. <laughs> and it's such a shame because because the material all exists there and all of the all of the uh, film rushes still exist for all the special effects. So you could definitely go back in. Would yeah. you do you think do you think if you were to, to come in and say do a director's cut on Warriors Gate now, if you were to look at it again now, because you, you you obviously can't shoot new material, do you yeah. think you would be able to, to shape a different product from the existing material? I think probably the 
the shape is more or less dictated by the um, dramatic narrative, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, it would be nice to shoot some uh, new material, but there's one effect which is the spinning coin in the yeah. Warriors game. And um, I said, I would, I want it to go up and to slow down, you know, we're in a different time zone, things happen differently here. So, yeah, and freeze, lovely. I want you to take that and do it again. And you zoom in. So, well, um, yeah, we can do that, yes. But uh, you begin to see the breakdown of the image. And I realized at that point that when you started to see individual pixels, it was as if the world was being seen in it through different eyes. Perfect. Oh, it doesn't look real. It doesn't, this doesn't mean to, it shouldn't look real. It shouldn't it's look hyper real. real. Hyper real, surreal. It's a different universe. We're somewhere outside of ordinary yeah. time and space. Yeah. Now, either you understand that without sitting down like this for 10 minutes saying what, what we're doing. We're in a, a, an edit situation where you have to do something and move on, you know. Now, yeah. that was, that's like a concrete example and also a metaphor for what I faced with this. With the production? With the, yeah, with every aspect of the production. You, you, it sounds yeah. like you fought at every turn on this production. I fought at every turn. And there, people said, you looked exhausted, you were fired, you you know, you had a mental, didn't have all that. It was just, I was under enormous pressure all the time. But I'm pretty strong and I kept going, you know. Yes, I was fired, I think three times uh, one day. John Nathan. On the third occasion, it was clear that the firing was a, a kind of um, slap on the wrist rather than a, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. He told me to get out of the control room, you know, at some point. And I'd left my bag, so I was able to get back in. I think I left my bag, John. Oh, oh, you come in. You better sit down then. <laughs> so I was rehired. And it was all forgotten again. But I mean, it's fantastic that you, well, firstly, that you had the strength of character to stick with it because yeah. a lot of people would have crumpled under that kind of pressure. They and wanted me to crumple. They wanted me to crumple. I had the same thing with the film on Four in Ireland where I had uh, a really vicious producer and they want that, the same thing happened. They were with, it was called Summer Lightning with Paul Schofield. Uh, they wanted me to fail. They hate, you know, I'm an English Protestant sort of aristocratic representative coming into RTE, um, you know. <laughs> and and, it, and this, exactly the same thing happened by the sounds of it at the BBC where you were coming in. I yeah. think you were coming in from an auteur perspective. Oh, and, always. Yeah, that and was it. They, and the BBC were coming from the old style studio system that they'd run for decades. And literally you, you banged heads, didn't you? Loggerheads right away. Yeah, you see, there's been uh, some controversy about the role that Graham Harper, who went on to direct other, uh, you yeah. know, uh, uh, considerable yeah. talent, uh, no yeah. question about it. Um, he, he didn't direct anything without my approval. There, were, there was a time on the floor where I, when I was in the box and he was on the floor, I said, look, you've got to get the MZ coming out of, you know, or whatever it yeah, was. Yeah. Just, you know what to do, because uh, I'm doing this. 
and he's always said that he didn't direct anything himself, you know. But he he has said that he learned a great deal from me during that experience, and I think I think he did. But there was the if you look back at Graham Harper, you know, he kind of made tea on uh, Let's Be a Vet or whatever that bloody series was. You know? On Creases Great and Small. All creatures great and small. Um, <laughs> I prefer I'm let's right be there. a vet. <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever. Well, yeah, I prefer mine. He, um, uh, he so, all the way up to direct. That's what they want. Yeah. Plus your control. Oh, Grant. Okay, now you did very well. Now you can do this. Now, now you you can help Paul on that, and then we might give you a slot. Uh, and what you end up with then is somebody who who takes the yeah, oh, gratefully takes the script albeit bollocks and does it you know that's all they want just to, yeah, here yeah. you are just to, don't give a shit just do it just and do it in time and without a fuss and that's it well they didn't give me a script they gave me a treatment it's about huge controversy you know Steve Gallagher says oh I've written you know eight drafts and uh, could you explain for us Paul what is the difference for the people out there who don't know what do you see as the main difference between a treatment and a full script well a, a treatment is is like a, if you are submitting a novel to a publisher mm -hmm. you'd probably submit the first chapter and a synopsis oh yeah the synopsis being the story beyond the first chapter that's basically a treatment and then the tardis arrives in this space and there's a bit of a thing and some of the the, the gundam comes for you know and yeah, a then, breakdown uh, of what will happen go, in what yeah, order that's it no dialogue just an indication of the movement of the story because you want to hit you want to see particularly with uh, a doctor who which is four parts you know you've got to end uh, find uh, an ending that's going to bring people back to the next episode None of, that was in, those, none, of, none of that was in Gallagher's. It was just a, a storyline. Almost, almost story a stream line. of consciousness thing where he just gone, then this happens, then that happens, yeah, yeah, rather was, than a practical, yeah. a practical I mean, script he thought that you could work story through. through. Uh, he hadn't really thought about the uh, getting rid of Ramana and K9. At that point, I said to Chris Bidmead, who's, who was the best script editor I'd ever worked with anywhere, what do we, we you know, I can't, <laughs> You've got, you've got no script. <laughs> what do we get? Oh, okay. So they cancelled the first week of. I lost a week of rehearsals. Yeah. But they didn't give. They didn't. Ex they didn't give me another week. Of, you know, it's like when they closed the the set because they said it was dangerous. Lost two or three days. Never got it back. I wondered, Paul, if that because there's a lot of there's a lot of urban myths I think that have built up not just around the story itself because it is very mysterious, it is very uh, multi-layered, but around the production too. There are all sorts of things about that the set was condemned, that that yourself, that yourself, you know, that you were fired, or that, may, yeah. that other people, other personnel may have done this or may have done that. There are so many myths out there about this, about just this four episodes of television is that something that surprised you well yeah obviously it surprised me what i have to say about it though is that i think it justifies how i went in when i went in i went in with john carpenter here and stanley yeah. kubrick here yeah and robert aldrich there 
you know, there they were, all hovering around me, and in I went. Spirit guides. <laughs> yes. And I said, and we showed, we went, there was a, you know, a viewing theatre. We ran 2001, we ran Dark Star, we ran Kiss Me Deadly. This will give you an idea of what I'm trying to achieve. So I wasn't, there was no pretending. I wasn't pretending that uh, uh, auteurism didn't exist. I wasn't, I went in fully transparent. We want to do something which uh, takes the, f the form and, and contorts it and twists it and makes it something interesting, which is the nature of the show anyway. So out of interest, had you seen Doctor Who at that point and did you know that you were deliberately going in to distort and bring in a new sensibility? Or well, we'd all seen like... William Hartnell, you know, wandering around in black and white, and, you know. Uh, um, no, I, did, I wasn't a, a huge fan of Doctor Who. Um, I mean, were you aware that, the, that you, were you aware that the BBC system, studio system, worked as it did, and you were deliberately going in to do something different, or was it a surprise to you to discover, oh, what you want to do? No, I knew about the BBC system. I, I knew an uh, elderly producer there called Rosemary Hill, who was um, apparently very sympathetic to me, but never employed me. She all she wanted was a drinking companion. So I went in and got pissed in the bar with her, <laughs> and she never gave me anything to do. She gave it all to a director called Peter Hammond. <clears throat> you know, I knew this, I knew the system very well. I, you know, I, I walked the corridors of the BBC, but I was always an outsider. I mean, if I'd got in there, the facilities within the BBC, you know, the the, the departments like Matt Irvin, you know, imagine going to him and saying, you know, look, we. I've got a whole program. Let's start from scratch and work out how we can do the special effects on this. They didn't want me in there. I would have been, for them, a malign influence because I would have contorted the system and made it do something, you know, uh, like the war game. I'm not comparing myself with him, you know, so that's no. a, it's a great, great, and uh, Culloden, his documentaries, wonderful. I'm not comparing myself to that. I'm just saying he can't get arrested. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because because certainly the visual side of Warriors Gate is absolutely up there as one of the most, if not the most, visual Doctor Who stories. Certainly up until that point, where were your sensibilities working? What was more important to you? Was it the narrative, or was it the visual, or do you think it was the the meshing of the two? It was the meshing of the two. I remember when I was doing two books with David Hockney and staying, spending a lot of time with him. I was in his studio in LA and he said, we make images here. That's what we do. We're in a, um, an image factory. And that's, and that's how I think really through, yeah. through images. I'm always chasing the light or thinking, you know, my note to amateur photographers is always, as the day ends, chase the light because yes. you'll get the best image. And in a sense, I'm I'm always chasing the light. An example of that would be where I brought the studio to a halt by shooting off offset because and there was the perfect structure for a badly made spaceship. 
Uh, were you aware you were going to you were, you were going to run into problems by trying to do that, and you didn't care? Or no, I, you... I, 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 if I'd thought it through, you know, you're going to have um, six months or six weeks of hell. You're going to be fired. You're, you're going to crawl <laughs> home at the end of the. I probably would have said yes. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, Graham Hart. I've, you must have a very thick Graham skin. Harvard? You must have a very thick skin, Paul. Well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, there's always this controversy over the camera scripts, these missing camera scripts. That, that Fucking camera to... scripts. <laughs> the only reason for a camera script in the BBC is for the the fourth Dalek. I mean, when I say Dalek, the, you know, the cameras were, the camera. were, were Daleks, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and the cameraman usually talked a bit like Daleks, you know. And so yeah, so uh, the camera, cameraman Thor on the corner of the table, you know, would know that at that moment he has to get the axe going in yeah that's it you know and it's down there in black and white whereas i don't give a shit about cameraman four and the axe going in you know i if i've got a handheld camera there i'll shoot it that way yeah oh yeah but that's outside so i don't the camera script wasn't something that i couldn't do it was something i didn't want to do didn't want to admit just seemed flat somehow it just seemed flat to you compared to the the way you were relating to the material and and how you saw your, the the vision the vision for it those images that you described you're led by imagery well yeah i mean um something more visceral yeah you you're led by that and uh of course the uh you want to find tools which are going to unlock the, those possibilities and one of those would, was the Ikigami camera, you know. Mm -hmm. It was the first time it was used on Doctor Who, that was, as far as I understand. Can yeah. you remember, Paul, can you remember at what point did kind of the penny drop, as it were, and you and you realised, OK, this is going to be a hard slog. So was it on your first day in the production office? Was it when you were doing the rewrites? Was it the start of rehearsals, the studio day? What, at what point did you think, wow, this is going to be tough? Well, uh, from the moment you wake up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all all those and more. <laughs> all those and more. I mean, exactly. your, your point about the penny is quite interesting because the penny didn't drop; it stayed in no, the air and froze. There, but, it's still there. That's right. Yes, yeah, so, but it's, it's but going it, to be a bad day. But it's interesting yes, it because <laughs> it's interesting because that that opening sequence, that opening shot of episode one, is truly, I think, one of the most bravura two minutes of television of doctor who period i remember i watched um warriors gate as an 11 year old yeah and was blown away by it no i didn't understand it but i was blown away by the visual style of it the panache the confidence the experimental style of it and that opening sequence still blows me away to this day because it's like nothing you have ever seen before or since on Doctor Who. So you were yeah. really, really pushing the envelope, weren't you, with those, with that visual style and to bring something deliberately different to Doctor Who. Yeah. That must have been forefront for you. Well, that, but that, that came from a film vocabulary and knowledge. Yeah. Touch of Evil, which is yes. the greatest opening. Of, yes. And probably Wells' greatest film, I think. Yeah, a, a, a film that he had barely any control over and was taken out of his hands and butchered. Yeah, until it, uh, you know, 25, 30 years later, he had the chance to uh, reconstruct okay. it. Um, 
uh, an opening which Altman uh, paid homage to in his film. In about the um, now, you, so I was aware, I mean, the Altman came later, I, uh, after mine. Uh, I was aware of the, of the Wells opening. Yes. And you don't need to know that a 35 millimeter camera loaded, fully loaded, has got, you know, maybe uh, eight, nine, ten minutes of, yeah. unless you've seen Rope and, you know, the other Hitchcock films where he was using that technique. But there's something about the camera when it doesn't cut, when you yes. don't change the viewpoint. You know, it's like someone, someone's in a room and they are hit over the head and dragged out and thrown into the boot of a car. Now you can do that through 15 cuts, or you can do it from the point of view of the person who is hit, is hit over the head and dragged <laughs> yeah. out and thrown into the boot of the car. Now, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. What's Which going to more rush you? What's the way that Paul Joyce is going to shoot that? Yeah. And, okay. and, and this is and this is really interesting because say that first that first couple of minutes before escape really grabs you and it never it never really lets go. Exactly. But, that's that's it, what you got to do. And there's one other element of Doctor Who. My son now, who's uh, in his 30s, and did see it very early on, he's now a teacher at, um, at uh, Wickham Abbey private school. He watched it, and my granddaughter is now coming up to nine, and she suddenly realises that uh, I'm famous in a very tiny way, you know, like I got my photograph in Doctor Who magazine. <laughs> suddenly, the old fool, you know, is kind of, oh. <laughs> It's granddad's alright. Um, he watched it with her just two or three nights ago, which is very interesting. And he said, what distinct... A, he said, the star was undoubtedly Clifford Rose, who gave yes. a fantastic performance. He yes. said, he blew Tom Baker away. Sam, my son, and I probably believe that Tom was the, the, the best of them. But he said it was the humour from from the beginning it was the humor and that the humor was the glue that stitched that story together and if you look at all the great directors look at stanley kubrick his greatest film is dr strangelove in yeah. terms of humor yeah and talking talking of the great tom baker how did you get on with tom baker oh he was grim grim i mean i loved him as a person but professionally it was a nightmare uh, there was some kind of rehearsal space in Acton, this, you know, huge fucking building, yeah. BBC owned. You know, it's Jonathan Miller here and doing rehearsing Shakespeare and things. They're all, you know, and it was all um, like um, an army barracks, you know, with 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 steel furniture and uh, and um, old um, polystyrene caps, cups around of tea, you know, half drunk tea and that dog ends on the floor and everything because you can smoke then in those uh, yeah and so you go in there uh and everybody's reluctant they don't want to read the script anyway tom doesn't and in the <laughs> corner there is a stationary a bbc stationary cabinet so you've got to find the key to that first 
because Tom wants to get into it. <laughs> so uh, we, we managed to open that up the stationery cabinet. And uh, there are boxes, you know, things like notepads and so on. And the, uh, the BBC then bought the, the cheapest available HB pencils, which came in boxes, and they were a kind of yellow colour. They obviously, you know, cost a shilling for 25 gross. You know. <laughs> and Tom would take a box of those out, say, right, you know, sit at the table. And we start reading, say, no, I'm not saying that. And the, the pencil would go down onto the script and he'd do that. And the pencil would break uh, because they were very cheap, you know. So by the end of the session, he'd cut 90% of his dialogue and there were two boxes of, uh, of, of broken um, pencils on the floor. Why did he not want to do his dialogue? Did he was it because he didn't like it, or was just was he? I think I I I I I give him the full benefit of the doubt. I think that as a really good actor, um, and not film, but he would be equally good in film on television. He was aware that you could do more with an expression than okay. you could with words. Mm -hmm. And he was used to rather poor words. Well, I mm -hmm. thought that Chris Bidmead and I came up with words which weren't necessarily poor words, you know? Well, I suppose at that point he had been in his character for six years, hadn't he? He'd lived with that character. So he, he, he knew he was yeah. leaving. So that, uh, you know, and I struggled to uh, prevent him from reducing too much. Um, but there was a, a trick which I'd learned from an elderly director uh, who'd had an experience, a similar experience with another actor. And I brought in a tape recorder to the session uh, and put it on the table. He said, uh, no, he said, what's, uh, what's that? I don't want that. Not recorded. No, I don't want to be recorded. I said, well, Tom, um, the, uh, I brought it in because you know your contributions are so interesting that I don't want to I don't want to miss any of. <laughs> and from then on, he didn't change a word. Really, isn't that interesting? So maybe he just needed a little bit of authority being exerted on him to yep. bring him down a peg, and then and then and then he would he would fly from from that point. I mean, how he, did... did, he didn't want he didn't he didn't want it to be recorded so that. Yeah. You know, you could say to the BBC, "Look, he's he's refusing he's to say the line. He's being difficult." How did you? How how did? Because there was absolutely this struggle, and it sounds like a you know a titanic struggle that you had on the production side. How, what about on on the cast side? Was oh, it the, it's smooth as silk. That everyone I wanted. And were they watching? Were they watching all these arguments over? Closing the set for two hours because of the split level set and, and oh the no, no, they'd go in a, in a huddle and they say oh Paul's having a bit of a problem there you know I <laughs> think Clifford Rose said you know he was he was bullied well I wasn't bullied you know I was I was threatened. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let's just uh, remind people out there the cast of Warriors Gate. You mentioned Clifford Rose there. It's an incredible performance that he gives. Very contained. Very believable. 
very focused. We've also got Kenneth Cope in the cast, a great character actor who'd come to notoriety on Randall and Hopkirk, deceased, had in the late 60s, still acting to this day. There's also David Kincaid in the cast, Freddie Earle, Harry Walters, Vincent Pickering with uh, David Weston. Unrecognisable because he was under all that fur, so he can still... He was was in... um... Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death, because I worked with Cor- for Corman on a, a film he made here called The Tomb of Ligeia. Yes. I've seen it, yeah. Wonderful film. Yeah. So uh, I knew a lot of those people, you know, I'd watched them. Wow. Uh, well, that was the great thing about The Beeb, you could, uh, you could pull in people. I mean, Clifford Rose, I had, um, I'd seen, I'd watched many, uh, in the theatre at the Royal Shakespeare Company, he was the in the in the production by Peter Brook of Marasad, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just fantastic theatre in those days, much better than today. Uh, and I spotted actors there that I want, that I would work with later. Because Clifford Rose had had great success, hadn't he, in a really popular drama show a few years earlier, become a household name. And what was, face. remind me? Which one was that? Wasn't, wasn't he Kessler oh. in Secret Army? It's, uh, it's yeah, Secret it is, I think he was. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yes, yes, he had. Uh, I, but I cast him because of Marassad and the uh, the work he did at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm-hmm. And what it, what he did was, of course, treat it as a, an entirely believable script, and that this was a Nazi officer. Yeah. Yes, you he know, was that's absolutely what he, Nazi. That's what he was. You know, and. Uh, it, he was unwavering and and not you know a little kind of nod to the camera well this is a bit of fun yeah, isn't it? you're you safe know, with me really that. yeah and that's why that's why that that's why my son said he's the star mm-hmm. i noticed show. i noticed in the story as well that as as regards uh, birok and laszlo the tharrell's characters that th- those characters too are are complex that they've got this sort of checkered past where they were uh, oppressive almost mm-hmm. and quite violent and so to, we see them now as they are in this reduced quality as, as slaves being being treated as a commodity but by yeah. as you say by this by this uh, intergalactic nazi it shows the the uh, the complexities the shades of the shades of gray when you're talking about multi-layering layering with characters, um, you can you can convey a lot with a little. Uh, very often, you just need to hints here and there and so on. And mm. so, Chris and I tried to get that in. You know, they're very threatening. Uh, they're a very threatening presence. The Tharrells. You're, you're always very uncertain of them, and I think that again is down to the way that that you approach the story in this yeah. visual way. It's, it's so unsettling. We only ever really feel safe when we're with either the Doctor or Romana. And that's quite, that's quite unique for Doctor Who. There's usually, there's usually another sort of wall of warmth there, which I think, that, I think that we get, I think we do get that in this, but we get it from something else. I think we get it, I think we get it somehow probably from, from you from the way that you take us through the story, the way you lead us through that multi-level set that's kind of unlike anything we've ever seen on the show before, mm-hmm. the way that you hit those visual beats that, again, are quite unlike anything we've ever seen, but still feel 
still feel uh, that we can reach out and touch them. I think you should write the review. Very <laughs> 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 yeah. Write that out. That's excellent, yes. Uh, but well beyond what I thought, yes. But uh, what's, what struck me, though, when you, to hear you speaking about this, Paul, and your creative process, yeah. you've still, the way you talk about this, and this happened several decades ago, and yet yeah. I get the impression from you that you viewed the entire the entire period and this job, because you know, this is a job of work, that you viewed it as an opportunity to release something, to connect with something, to communicate something, and to and to exp and to experiment within within reason. Whereas, you know, Simon and myself, we've probably read and watched a lot of interviews with people who've not who've directed a lot of Doctor Who, but directors generally, you know, because we follow. Uh, popular culture and entertainment yeah. and what something we hear a lot about the bbc is about is all about confinement all about restriction and i know that you did feel that but immediately you were you it seems like you went in there on, on a grand level and kind of carpet bombed this production with creativity and saw it as the, the things that other people saw as barriers you either not completely dismissed them but kind of just stepped really confidently over them. In a kind of, I think Simon used the word bravura earlier on. I can't think of anything better than that. And it, it's almost a, a fearlessness that you that you seem to have that may have uh, got people's backs up. I don't know. Oh, it did. Yeah, I mean, the fearless. If there was fearlessness, it it is because you can see that if you proceed in a certain way you're going to get a terrific result. Now, remember that I said that I think that Warrior's Gate is about 32 or 33% effective over what I wanted. Which, which, which makes my brain fizz to think, okay, if you'd actually achieved- um, Imagine if they said, okay, Paul, we can see you need that extra week, yeah. you know, which you missed. Yeah. Okay, the set, has been condemned but actually we've double checked it and it's fine so you will have your three days back now you wanted some you know if i'd had that rather than what the fuck are you doing do you realize it's half past five well I'm, I'm, no, you know i mean that that's the mentality you can't shoot you're shooting off the set you can't do that no 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 i find everybody it. out and the frustrating thing with all of this for you must have been, for example, with the split level set, which, yeah, from what we understand, the, the lighting uh, chief had that, the lighting crew had that condemned as unsafe. Yeah. Uh, and it got, and you had the set closed for a while. Now, yeah, well, guys, that's not your fault at all. You were not responsible for putting that set together. And yet you were the one who was ultimately losing two hours of yeah. your time. At that. Well, point. they would say that. They would say... Uh, well, why is he built a set, you know, that's on two levels, you know, well, why is he built it? It's built in a steel. Well, talk to the designer, you know, I mean, that's exactly. the designer. Uh, what's the problem? You know, uh, make sure it's it's safe. I wanted because we're going up and down. We've got to have a lightweight camera. Do you know, uh, it's, it's going to give me all sorts of opportunities. <laughs> and getting back and just returning for a second, uh, don't want to interrupt the flow, but to the camera script. The whole point about, you know, when you're dealing with those kind of unknowns, really until you're actually, even be there with your, you know, your coffee cups and your stationary cabinets and all that, <laughs> when you're on the set with a lightweight camera, 
Yeah. And there's Romana there, and there's, you know, and someone's coming with, it's a whole different set of circumstances there. So you wanted to work much more organically than, yeah. than on a, from a piece of paper. That's, that's what it boils down to, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I had some fun. There's one scene uh, out, outside the white space where there's an argument between Kincaid and and the camera moves around. And, yes. you know, it, it it's about a three-minute sequence. I remember Nathan Turner couldn't believe it. We got it in the first take, you know, like two and a half, three minutes. Because on the one hand, you were being criticised for being too, um, I think uh, yeah. John Dean, the technical manager, actually described you as being self-indulgent and incompetent. Um, well, and, uh, interesting combination, that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> was I incompetent in my self-indulgent? But then on the other <laughs> hand... <laughs> I remember, other... I remember um, um, when I did a, a programme uh, for... Um, Melvin Bragg on the South Bank show. Um, I did a film about uh, Nick Rogue, which he refused to transmit. Right. He said, he said, this, this documentary is Marxist and elitist. And I said, fuck me. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's, I, that's, what, that's what I was aiming for. <laughs> you can't, you're almost, you are somewhat of a frustrated filmmaker right? or an artist, a frustrated artist throughout your life, but it sounds, it sounds like you're yeah, yeah, Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they don't but let what? me out the cage, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, isn't it, isn't it true that it's, those, that it's those daring people who dare to push the envelope yeah. and dare to go for broke? Those are the ones we need because it's the safe ones that are not interesting. And that's one of the reasons why Warriors Gate still stands up there. And it's remarkable that you only directed four episodes, one story of Doctor Who, and yet everybody still within Doctor Who world knows your name, and everybody still yeah. talks about Warriors Gate. Well, it's that, very, that's great. But it's, remember, the reason why is the reason why I went in. Yes. It was to say it is possible. Yeah. No, it's not. Fuck off. <laughs> but, Go but no, it's not. No, no. Graham, oh, Graham, oh, come in. Yes, we've got a script for you. But you I said, uh, it's about uh, oh, tourism. It's about, and 40 years on, with w the reason we're doing this interview is precisely that. Yeah. yeah. That enough, that that 32 or 33% of what I wanted stuck to the point that you recognise it, a whole new generation recognises it. You know, I'm dust, I'm gone, you know. <laughs> I'm too so old to direct it now. But I would have loved the opportunity. But I, they wouldn't want me in. Russell T. Davis wouldn't want me in because he's writing them. He's saying, I'm writing this. Mm -hmm. I say, well, Russell, it's a terrific, you know, draft. But uh, maybe we... I don't want that. They don't want to be challenged. Challenge the system. If you if you come in as a director to television, you're challenging what a, a system which has been in place for 50 years, which mm -hmm. is the writer producer axis. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And directors are just, you know, like cameraman or, you know, uh, whatever they call a lighting technician. <laughs> you know? And you blurred and you blurred that, didn't you? Because you came in and you and you 
wrote whatever proportion of the script you wrote, you wrote it, and that, that is acknowledged by Chris Bidmead. It's as I am assuming it's probably on the paperwork because I write. I think I'm right in saying that you were paid for the rewrite, weren't you? But not they, yeah. They were, uh, they uh, reluctantly paid me for the rewrite, uh, but they didn't give me a screen credit. Yeah. And it's interesting because I have recently listened to the uh, to the Stephen Gallagher, the new novelization that Stephen Gallagher has done from his 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 original script. Um, and it's interesting. That's just come out this year, hasn't it, Simon, on yeah, BBC Audio? Yeah, it's, it's an audio. That's right. It's an audio reading by John Culshaw. You see, uh, he can't let it go. But no, you, you, when he when the first novelization of the book that he attempted, they turned it down because they said it wasn't like the TV show. But what's interesting for me, you see, is that, uh, and, and because I now, from what I understand, that new novelization is written from Stephen Gallagher's script. The things that I love about the show are not in the novelization. And well, so that's that why they didn't accept the, his first that, version of it. That's poor choice, <laughs> that's poor choice. Because, for example, I find it incredible that that, that, that sequence of Romana being threatened by um, the un unseen Tharrell at the end of episode two, it's yeah. not in the book. It's no. not, in, it's, it's gone. But the most, the most, the, the, the most significant scene for me in the entire production of Warriors Gate is the banqueting scene, the, the cliffhanger to episode three. Absolutely. Not in the book. It's gone. It's out. Episode three cliffhanger doesn't exist anymore. And that beautiful, beautiful banqueting scene with the axe coming down and the cobweb suddenly appearing. That's the moment. It's yeah. gone. It's not there. And that, to me, is the key scene in Warrior's Gate. And as a child, I remember just my mind just being blown by that. Well, you, what you're talking about are uh, 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 visual devices to describe indescribable things. Yes. The passing of time, the interruption of memory, uh, the stirring of emotions, which can lead to some kind of hallucination or a vision that isn't shared by everybody. All those things are to do with visual storytelling. You know, John Nathan Turner didn't understand any of that. For me personally, I've always thought that Warrior's Gate is very much the 2001 Space Odyssey of Doctor Who, because again, nice as a child, I didn't understand 2001, but it connected with me on an aesthetic level. Um, yeah. and, and you return to it over and over and over again, don't you get something different from it? or? And it's yeah, and it becomes a work of art in its own right, um, and and so you can connect you can connect on different levels with something, and that's what I got from Warriors Gate was that was that visual connection with it that something was intriguing me about it. It was it was like an itch that wouldn't go away that it was it just lodged in your brain. Does it bother you at all, Paul, that people still struggle? To understand Warriors Gate is that is that important? Do they need to understand it, or can they appreciate it without understanding it? Well, I struggle to understand it as well. I mean, but that's that's the great thing. Uh, leave it and you know, leave it multi-layered and ambiguous, so you Was can you know. I mean, for example, if you read the work of Ernest Hemingway when you're twenty and forty and sixty. Across the River and Into the Trees seems like a masterpiece, the work of a fumbling adolescent and a triumph over three different, yeah. uh, different of your life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And 
but that's true of great great writing you know and i think it's true of, of great filmmaking whether it's true of warriors gate or not i wouldn't be the one to judge but that's what i was aiming for something well, which would be uh, in a sense timeless well, I think in that respect, you, it absolutely was. I think from that, if that's what you were trying to achieve, I think you did achieve it because certainly, certainly it is timeless. But secondly, you're right in that I now look at it across the different generations. I look yeah. at it in a different light. And so, yeah, as a child, I was just kind of, I was a little bit entranced and, and, and intoxicated by this weird imagery that I didn't necessarily understand, but I related to. Now, yeah. as an adult, I'm able to look at it and I absolutely admire it as a, as a piece of, of artwork. So does it? So do you almost then still get irritated that people, in that case, complain and say, "Oh, I don't understand Warriors Gate," so I'm, I, I don't, I don't get it, so I'm not interested in it. The balance of the enthusiasts to the detractors has worked massively in favour of the enthusiasts as time right. has gone on. Yeah. Uh, and the ones who say I don't understand it, I, I simply don't uh, deal. You know, what am I going to say to them? Well, um, go back to school. <laughs> Would you, would you feel the needs to try to explain the story to them? Or is it a case no. of, no, if you don't get it, you don't, don't get it? No, 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 uh, uh, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and explain the story. I think that you would do a disservice to the story and to the characters because you would indicate only one route through it. And, and, do, you and, and do you think that that could be also that, not silence on your part, but that understanding, that unspoken understanding between yourself and, and the audience member could be what challenges them if they don't understand it on the first watch or even yeah. the fifth watch or even on the 12th watch they will continue to go back to it and try and unlock it decode it well that's fine you know um i can't imagine watching it 12 times without really understanding it i think that might be a bit tricky you know I still struggle to understand it. I've seen it numerous, numerous times. That's far more than 12 Sometimes times. I think I've got it. I think I've got it all nailed down. I've got it kettled. I know where it sits in my head. I know what it's all about. And then somebody, Simon or one of our one of our other co-hosts on the show, will ask me to explain it. And I'll go, well, it's about, th well, it's sort of, yeah. that, this happens. And well, and it's, it's about like that. It's smoke, isn't it? It's yeah. like smoke. You can see, so you can almost grasp it, but then it's gone. And I you think can't. I've got it nailed down. And then I make an abject fool of myself. <laughs> Two of the Doctor's co-stars left the TARDIS in Warrior's Gate. Both were much publicised departures. Was the enormity of that apparent to you at the time? Because the, the children were bereft at the loss of K-9 and Lala Ward's Romana had proven immensely popular too due to her kind of otherworldly uh, characterisation, I suppose, that, that was balanced really perfectly, I felt, in Warrior's Gate in particular but uh, little moments like that that happen in such a long-running show with such a deep connection with the audience was that just sort of taking care of business to you inconsequential well um there was the imminent departure of course of tom baker so mm -hmm. you know in in you had this feeling of closure hmm. um to be honest i thought that the loss of canine and romana was you know was detrimental to the show ultimately and john the wonderful actor who played uh, the canine what, what he was he was one of my greatest supporters on <laughs> i mean the voice of canine yeah he was always on the set lovely lovely guy he was very very bright guy he could see exactly what he, he said i know i can see what you're going through you know he was very much on my side whereas 
Lala really wasn't. And Tom didn't really care. It would have been lovely to say to Tom, and we drank together and so on, but, you know, and got on superficially. But to say to him, look, you know, this is what I want to try and do with Warriors Gate. Uh, about halfway through, when I, I came back with the black and white photographs of Paris Castle, he suddenly thought, hmm, yeah, <laughs> this guy's serious, you know? Because I'm right, aren't I, thinking that Tom, that was the point at which Tom said, Tom complimented you and said, yeah, the sequences of, 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 the, of the combination of the live action with the black and white, he, he approved of that, didn't well, he? Well, that's because it was right in his face. But, I mean, he had plenty of opportunities with the different versions of the script and conversations. And if he'd been interested, he just fucked off, you know. I mean, yeah. uh, leaving me to have the conversations with the, I was always in favor of, of um, not group decisions, but group acknowledgement of what was happening. I, uh, one thing I really, a compliment that was given to me on Doctor Who was, that I was a great communicator. I think Matt Irvin said that. And I was the only uh, uh, director to attend special effects session. Can you imagine Stanley Kubrick <laughs> saying, oh, uh, oh, it's, yeah, and just get it spinning round, will you? And then we'll, then we'll, and there'll be a bit of music. And yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. Because I was there and Matt knew I was there and everybody, they got it right. They did it very well, you know. And, that, and I know Matt has talked a lot about the fact that he was surprised and very complimentary of the fact that you were there. Whereas to you, of course you were going to be there. Why would you not be there? Whereas clearly... Yeah, uh, uh, miss it? No, of course this, not. No, no, no. And this is where you very much clearly come from an auteur sensibility that you are, you, you want to be um, overseeing the entire... I mean, you, you took... I'm right in thinking that you took the photos at Paris Castle, didn't you? you, you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I found the negatives at last. Those oh. are all the negatives. There, there are 20 of them in there, and they're in, you see, they're in, they're yeah, in bag. We can, yeah. yeah. That's phenomenal. Those of you that can't is... see, Paul's holding them up for us now on the, on the yeah, screen. Yeah, there are, there are uh, 20 in, in, in there. So yeah. to involve those photographs and that and that whole environment of, of Paris Castle, yes. was that completely from you, Paul? Had you been yeah. there before? This was a location you were familiar with and you knew instinctively that this was this was right. No, I just did research and realised that that was that was uh, the most interesting uh, garden and statuary. So you you must have been writing that material in, knowing you couldn't go on location. Did you already have in your brain how you were going to shoot this? Were you writing the script with this in mind? I, that that I, I must confess, I, I can't recall, uh, you know, chicken or egg, whether uh, no. I came up with that because of Paris Castle or because uh, I then thought, oh, well, yes. Paris Castle is going to... I, I, I simply don't remember that. But at the point that I realised that one way of creating this this extraordinary or hopefully extraordinary world or universe would be to combine black and white and color so that you've got a feeling of the past and the present um you know collapsing in on onto yes. one another that was something that you know sort of uh, um naturally evolved out of the story we were telling yeah 
And of course, the other interesting thing that had never really happened on Doctor Who before was you commissioning concept art, because you were the one that commissioned the painting of the gateway um, from D.H. Smith, and that had never been done before. And I, I guess the feeling on that was, why is Paul asking, why, why are we doing this? <laughs> well, that's become a famous image. It's on everything. Uh, but do you know where the original is out of interest? I was offered it about 10 years ago, and I turned it down. So, no, some, Paul! Yeah, yeah, some fan had it. It went into the BBC archive, and then I think, someone stole it and then it went onto the black market and then it was yeah. offered to me and, uh, and then I don't know where it is now. It's such an iconic image and this again is the thing with, with Warriors Gate, it's literally, you know, we've talked about them but it's the coin, uh, it's the banqueting scene, it's the axe, it's, it's the gateway, it's full of iconic standout iconic images yeah. that burrow into your brain. Visual but remember, uh, so remember Simon, that this was meant to be a low budget production in a white set. <laughs> this is a cheap show, you know. We'll just knock <laughs> it off and, uh, you know, come on, quick, get on to the next one, get rid of Romana, then we move on. And so, out of this kind of white fog, I had to create a hopefully memorable images. Within the, the nature of the material, there was very little there, it all had to be created. This is why it doesn't actually worry me personally that I've never actually understood it fully because that's not what it's about for me. It is this romantic image of the gateway with the mirrors in and where does it go to? I don't know. Does it matter that I don't know? No, it doesn't. It's it's the world. It's, you know, we, we're going down a filmic route for a second. It's the mise-en-scene, isn't it, Paul, of this yeah. world that you created. And that's what Warrior's Gate is. And that's why it still remains to me a unique Doctor Who story, it is. There's nothing like it. Well, it, it's great to hear, you know. Um, <laughs> you, you must be proud of it. Uh, yeah, I, well, of course. I mean, it's it's the albatross, isn't it, uh, around my neck? It is. You know? <laughs> yeah, and people say, what's the highlight of your career? <laughs> Doctor Who. What was the low point <laughs> of your career, Doctor Who? <laughs> <laughs> is that well, a bad thing? Is that a good thing? <laughs> Well, uh, it's good now because we're chatting away and in, enjoying each other's company. Yeah, so, and a lot of people have seen it on blue and yeah. hopefully on, on Blu-ray. I think uh, the sadness of it is that nobody, either six months later, a year later, a decade later, four decades later, so, you know, I'm still here. <laughs> the, the, the phone don't ring. And the I phone don't ring. I find that so frustrating. Do you do you do you feel that it was something of a horrendous experience that 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 now that you almost wish hadn't happened, or are you pleased it's happened? Or, or... well, uh, uh, if it hadn't happened, I'd be sitting here rather alone, looking at a half-finished painting, <laughs> wouldn't I? <laughs> well, why doesn't the phone ring? You know. Viewing uh, I, figures. I, I much prefer to be talking to you lads, you know, than uh, than sitting here uh, wondering if I, if the kidneys can take another coffee. The uh, viewing figures for Warriors Gate they ranged between seven and eight point five million. They went up as the story progressed. I That's think... great. I thought they'd go down when people say, "What the fuck's going on?" <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't understand it? a word. People like Where being challenged. People like being challenged after all, Paul. Who knew? That's, good. That's great. That's not bad figures, really. Not at yeah. all. And as Simon mentioned earlier on, there are two CDs, in fact, released recently from the BBC, mm. that new updated audiobook oh, and yes. Stephen Gallagher's own direct sequel, 
which is called the Ring of Keros, which it picks up the story with Romana, Laszlo, and K9 remaining in East Space. But have you ever given any thought, Paul, about where you would take the story next? Where, when we leave, when there's a parting of those ways between the Doctor and Adric, and Romana and Kane. And have you ever given any thought to what happened afterwards? No, it, was, but it would have been very nice for them to say, you know, um, at that point, of course, it would have been difficult because Gallagher's had the original idea. So they'd, yeah, you'd have yeah. to go back to Gallagher. And Gallagher's always had a problem with what we did, uh, as we always had a problem with, with what he did because it didn't work, you know. It, uh, but the, the fact that he's scratching away at this saw the yes. Warriors Gate, Gallagher, you know, back and forth. I, I don't give a monkeys. You know? <laughs> I'm just uh, uh, unhappy that I didn't get more work out of it. He, he's, uh, you know, he's trying to prove that his concept for it is the one that ultimately is going to be judged. Oh, well, yeah. it's not. But, you know, it's what we're talking about, the Blu-ray, yes. the thing. That's, yeah. and yeah. he should be grateful and happy that his contribution was considerable in that and not mm -hmm. struggle on to prove that it was all his work or that his revised version of it is going to be the classic text and as i say the, the publishers uh, uh, as far as i understand it were not happy with his first novelization because it didn't stick to the to the exciting moments of the tv show I think I think it was yeah I think it was John Nathan Turner stepped in and, and put a stop to that and said no it's got to follow the uh, it's got to follow the television serial. Well, that's very um, nice of him considering he didn't understand a word of it. <laughs> how did you how did you get on with 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 sort of John Nathan Turner and Barry Letts as well? Come to that. Oh, Barry Letts. He he would sit there, you know, he'd look like a fucking accountant, you know. Well, Paul, yeah, um, we seem to be encountering certain problems. So I said, I'm the future and you're the fucking past. Thus ended my career. But it's interesting because actually, in all honesty, you were correct in that the, what you were trying to do on Warriors Gate, you were doing that filmic style, you were trying to do more of a single camera approach, etc., etc. That ultimately, that is exactly, I, I, you know, you were trying to do film on, on, on television and that yeah. ultimately is what's happened with television yeah. it has gone down the filmic route so actually you were correct you you maybe could have put it a little more politely to to barry letts but in effect he did he represented the old sis the st studio system and you represented oh, maybe i'm being too hard on barry letts he was a representative of everything that i was trying to kick against it's definitely your tenacity throughout your career that has kind of held you in good stead, uh, and and it's and bad, you know. <laughs> but but do you do you feel a little bit like you were? Well, maybe throughout your entire career, I don't know. Certainly in Warriors Gate, do you feel you were sort of misunderstood? That they just didn't quite get what you were trying to do, um, and do you feel a little bit like maybe you you were sort of hung out to dry? Oh yeah, all those things. Yes, uh, I don't. I mean, if Bidmead had been the producer on that, it would have been great, you know? You got on well. Of course, if he'd been producing it, then we couldn't have sat down and done the writing. So um, that's what you wanted. Somebody, we understood immediately what we were doing. He was the only, and Matt too. 
and the That's designer, right. Graham, Graham, you know, the and the costume designer, the lovely lady. You know, I mean, yes. I got that team together and they were very good. Yes. It would have been wonderful to have a real great lighting designer, you know, a cameraman yeah. in those days. You were in a studio and you had lights up here and he'd just point the lights down. You know, I mean, you, I, I, to light for a close-up, you know, yeah. you, you just, took, you know, it was the general light and you moved the camera closer. It was, there was no modelling, there was no painting with light, the great, great book that John Alton wrote about Yes. You know, how to create, uh, he did all the wonderful film noirs of the 40s. Those are the things that I grew up with. Do you wish, in hindsight, you had gone for a less ambitious approach, or are you pleased and proud of the fact that you actually went for broke on it and only well, got 30%? I, what, I mean, what, if, what? I, if, I'd, if I'd opted for a less ambitious approach, we wouldn't be talking now. Mm -hmm. It would just have been another show. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, although I'm not sure uh, how it would have emerged because there were no scripts for it, you know, basically. <laughs> would have been a fucking mess. Uh, so, uh, yes, I, uh, but all the, all the brickbacks, so all the disadvantages from, from going that way, you know, uh, haunted me for the rest of my career. How did you feel? Because you, you, I'm assuming that you were, to an extent, persona non grata at the BBC at that point, and, and were not going to be employed again. How did you? How did it? How did you end up? It must have been a bruising experience for you. I moved into photography and did other things at that point, and then documentaries. And you know, my great frustration was not in doing you know more top end drama, really, because I think that, that my skills were in you know working with actors and casting and visually and so on. I did a 90-minute film about Chris Christopherson and when Sam Peckinpah died, Chris said basically that Hollywood in the last decade of Sam's life just ignored him, that they denied him what was essential for his creative pulse to continue to beat. And I felt this, I felt the same way for, well, mm -hmm. 30, you know, years that somehow whatever establishment it is uh, that you have to pay attention to in order to get work ha have have, igno have ignored me. And it's funny, isn't it, that on the one hand, although it, it must have been a bruising experience for you, you're still happy to sit here and talk with us about it, even though it must have been painful. For yeah, you. well, I remember it very well, you know, while I can you still must have remember it. Uh, well, I can you must remember have it. It's a moment to to talk to you know such as yourselves because uh, I'm happy to sh to share that. Um, I I doubt if anyone will go through that experience because you can't replicate how the BBC was then. No, you know though that's that, those are the circumstances that I encountered at that time. Now uh, there might be a quite different story. I think it would be but different. I, I think ironically, I think I've, it's uh, you know I've I've watched the episodes when there are many Doctor Who's and John Hurt's been in there doing his terrible old man act, you know, rubbish. You think, Christ, give give me those facilities, yeah. Give me those actors. Give me those special effects, and give me a hand in the story, and I'll I'll do it again. Just uh, to remind you out there that uh, A Life Behind the Lens is a full retrospective 
of the career of Paul Joyce and that runs up until the 10th of November at the gallery at Winchester Discovery Centre in Hampshire. This sounds like it's a real opening up of a massive body of your work. Yeah, the 120, I think, framed pieces there. You've got a magnificent book out that, that, that accompanies the uh, Alive Behind the Lens exhibition. The names in this book that people you've worked with, Spike Milligan, James Cagney, Billy Wilder, Eartha Kitts, Jeff Bridges, Dirk Bogart, Quentin Tarantino, Harry Dean Stanton, Martin Sheen. These are huge. Brian Singer, Arthur C. Clarke, Dennis Hopper. The list goes on and on and on. How's it going to feel when you walk in there and see it all, all laid out across the walls? I mean, all the famous faces that you've, that you've photographed and these uh, stunning paintings. You, you really are a creative all-rounder, aren't you, who, who continues to get so much nourishment and stimulation just out of getting it all out there. I've taken photographs of the, of the, um, the great and the good and famous. I've painted vernacular Los Angeles architecture that appealed very much to Dennis Hopper, who got me a show in Santa Monica 13 years ago. I've um, done Venice. I've got a whole Stonehenge exhibition of photographs that William Boyd say make you see a familiar um, landscape through new eyes. I've written and adapted plays which are in text form which have never been performed and the phone doesn't ring and but no gallery will represent me and I don't have an agent. I, I wonder about that because it seems to me that those pictures would be liked by quite a lot of people. I was born during the war in Winchester and I remember quite a lot of the war and in 1944 my mother, heavily pregnant with me, was chased across a field near Whitchurch by a Messerschmitt that tried to kill her with machine gun fire. That's what I saw. That's a German fighter downed in a cornfield. And so you painted that from your memory? Yep. And certainly the book, I mean, I've been looking through the book, as I say, that accompanies uh, the exhibition, and it's a stunning piece of work with incredible photography. Uh, you've done a fantastic commentary to go with all this as well, some brilliant essays in there. It's, uh, what is it, 250 pages, this this book. It's a, it's a fantastic piece of work. I'm right in thinking that people can get hold of copies of this book, can't they? And again, we're going to put the links in for people yeah, to be able to access uh, it's, it's available. It's a special order book, and it's in... Um, hardback and, and paperback. Paul, we can't thank you enough for spending this time with us today and congratulations on this retrospective event and our gratitude for your work on Warriors Gate all those years ago. Well, of course, there are mixed emotions about what was basically a horrendous experience. But I realised, you know, in talking to you that enough of, has survived of what I wanted like the opening shots and you know the spinning coins on but as i said it's 30 percent of what i really was trying to achieve so i think it yes there there is a frustration that those if you call them qualities were 
not acknowledged within the profession, which allowed me, you know, because I was relatively inexperienced in television at that point, you know, when <laughs> it wasn't like I'd had a whole career doing it, you know, this was my experiment with a, with a, a medium that I was coming to terms with, but it stopped there. It didn't go on to become, you know, something which developed my career or my abilities as a director within television. And I went back to film. I did, you know, uh, Summer Lightning with Tom Bell and David Warner and Paul Schofield. And uh, but, uh, that was uh, was not recognised either, you know. Because of the, the ideas that you brought to Warriorscape, the style that you wanted to make it in, and not just Warriorscape, other stuff that you've done as well. Um, and as I say, ultimately time has proven that what you were trying to do, certainly undoubtedly on Warriorsgate, is what we have now ended up with television production. I think you probably were ahead of your time. And I think you were, you, if nothing else, again, you can be proud of that fact, that you were doing something that ultimately has become, that's what we now do. That's how television production is. What I think was, if you like, unique about the Warriors Gate experience was that you were dealing with a show where the unexpected was the norm within the format of the programme. Within Doctor Who circles, Graham Harper is, is always held up as, as um, on the case of Androzani as, as being the first time uh, a true kind of uh, uh, director that broke out of the mould came into Doctor Who. And I've always railed against that. I've always said no. It happened in season 18. It was Love at Bickford on the Leisure Hive. Yeah. And it was yourself on Warriors Gate. And it was, it was me as an 11-year-old watching the Leisure Hive and Warriors Gate that inspired me to want to become a director. And I mm. did. So if nothing else, you know, I personally have a debt of thanks to you that it was that, it was watching Warriors Gate that inspired me to want to direct because I didn't know what a director did at that point, but I was like, I want to do that. Whatever that is, I want to do that. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. And frankly, you know, uh, one wants to be generous about it and, you know, with yourselves too, to say, well, if, if something transmitted to you, which went on uh, to um, produce, and you went on to produce creative work as a result of that, then I, I can only be very, very happy about that. You know, that, that's like passing on the baton in a way, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Graham, I've always thought of as, as a very talented director, he's but fantastic. not an auteur. You know, he's I mean, the, he's a very talented director, uh, yeah. and that's why he's employed, and I'm not. You know, that, but you're as talented as him, Paul. You are as talented as Graham Harper. Yeah, but you are. Uh, in, in a, but, uh, possibly so, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a different context and in a, a different manner and in a different way and as perceived by people like Barry Letts and his now equivalent. You know, the, yeah. the Barry Letts's keep going. I was quite wrong, you know. He's the future and I'm the past, basically, because Barry Letts or someone like him is always going to be there. And if they're not in the front office, you know, um, dealing with the creative talents, then they will be the, the financiers or yeah. the insurance, you know, they will always be there. Pulling the purse string, it's all about the money. There's a great, great line 
in uh, Body and Soul, a film noir, which I wish I'd written. It's all addition and subtraction. The rest is just conversation. That seems a perfect note on which to leave our conversation. That's now. wonderful stuff. Thank you so much for this, Paul. Sincerely, it's been a, a, a thrill to meet you. And, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's it, fascinating conversation. I, I had, I said to Simon before, I have no idea where this is going to go, and uh, boy, was I. A bit like Warrior's Gate. Good. Yeah. 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 What a privilege, Simon, to spend a couple of hours talking with Paul there. Such a generous and entertaining man, wasn't he? Yeah, I think that's the word, entertaining. And, and it's something that I hadn't necessarily expected to find from, from Paul. Um, because, because of all that we know about Warrior Skate and the troubled production history that it had, um, it, it's difficult to know what kind of a person Paul is going to be. Because he's not somebody like let's say Terence Dix, um, that, that we know lots about. We've seen lots of interviews with him. Paul is a much more ambiguous character to fans to actually get under the skin of. And so I was actually surprised what, what a warm and interesting and, as you say, entertaining person he was. And also the thing that really, really still um, surprises me but delights me is that he's as enthusiastic to talk about Warriors Gate as he is. Yeah. Because clearly it was a really traumatic experience for him. And I think anybody else would be quite excused from just saying, Do you know what, I really don't want to talk about that. That was a bad experience in my life and I, I, I don't want to talk about it. And yet he, he really enjoys talking about it. And also the other thing that amazes me is his recollection. He can remember so much of this. He's so clear. He's so precise. He doesn't. He knows exactly what happened when it happened. Um, he's, he's, he's clearly got a very good memory of these events, um, and so you come away. It's one of those things. Warriors Gate, the production of it, has always intrigued me as to quite what the truth of it is, and so I now feel I've got a much, much better understanding of of what went on in those studio wars and how problematic and traumatic and difficult it was, and that was gold for me. I suppose it's the nearest that we'll ever get to to being there on the studio floor and uh, in the gallery and all those places you know for, for that kind of of insight and, and knowledge of a time of a time in television where the making of the of all this content now you know we live in the streaming age now where so much of it is made it's such a volume of material and the bbc have got you know much more facilities just the bbc alone all over the country television is made differently now but the, i suppose the principle is largely the same isn't it and the uh, the creative process i suppose that may have altered i, th I suppose there are still frustrations there are still pitfalls and as well as as well as triumphs but it, I think that's going to be, I think that's going to prove to be a, an interesting conversation for people out there who are not just interested in the history of television, but interested in a career in television in the 21st century. Mm. And I, th I think it is a fair point that Paul was uh, ahead of his time. Very much you so. Know, he, he's, he is clearly a visionary. I mean, nobody could deny that. Mm. He's a visionary. Um, with with a with a very individual artistic style within him, um, and I think, as I say, it's fair to say he was ahead of his time because the kind of television that he was trying to make with Warriors Gate, uh, people were not doing at that time 
but people are doing now. That's how, that's yeah. more how television has gone now. So actually my feeling is, if anything, he was right in what he was trying to do. And, and, and Barry Letts was actually the, the old the old school, the old guard. Yeah. And Paul was pushing pushing for what would ultimately become the way television is made is made today. Um, and I suppose that conflict is, is a, a tale as old as time in itself, isn't it? Yes, of course it is. Because you, you look through, through any television or film history and there are visionaries. Stanley Kubrick is another example, you know, a, 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 ahead of their time. Um, and 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 I think Stanley Kubrick actually is a very good comparison with Paul Joyce. Paul Joyce would never ever be uh, he he would never be uh, the kind of person that would that would accept that. I'm sure. Um, I think he's too humble a person to do that. But actually, in television terms, he's very he he had a similar kind of um, ethos. I think working style as Kubrick did. Um, the difference is, of course, Kubrick had millions of pounds at his disposal and and um, studios falling at his feet to, to, to say yes, Stanley. Whereas for Paul, it was a very different experience. He was working against a very archaic BBC system that was very much locked in the past. And I suppose in a way it was kind of on that cusp because in those early 80s, television production was just in the process of moving from that very, very dated archaic old style into what we now have today and so in in that respect as i say paul was paul was out of his time in many ways things were creeping forward yes and from being ahead of one's time to running out of time because that is the old girl she's starting up and calling time on this edition of type 40 everybody but i'll be back soon with another with another podcast look out for that wherever you found this it could have been over on the dedicated home feed for type 40 type 40.podbean.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Google Play, Podbay, the Podbean app itself, everywhere. We're also on YouTube, of course, the world's largest streaming platform on the Spacebooks YouTube channel. And we're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network's very own master feed. As if we could ever, ever, ever leave. That's loaded with so many treats for your ears daily maybe you'd like to get in touch and have your say you can reach out to us through our social media instagram and twitter at type 40 doctor who or you can email us type 40 doctor who at gmail.com and if you're feeling very very brave brave enough that you could step through a charged vacuum embointment even you can find us over in the type 40 facebook group that's been going for five years now and full of fans of all generations from all corners of the Hooniverse, yes, you know who you are. They're, they're talking and they're commenting and sometimes arguing on a daily basis over in the Type 40 Facebook group. Real-time, uh, real extra-dimensional chit-chat for you there. Simon, where can people find you on social media? They can always come and find me on Facebook. That's where I spend my time. Don't do twitter or instagram or any of those newfangled things i'm a bit last century um so come and find me on on facebook where you will find me under the hunatics if you look at the hunatics w-h-o-n-a-t-i-c-s on uh, on facebook and you'll find me there as the admin wonderful stuff and you can find me on twitter and instagram as the spacebook where i am wheezing and groaning posting sharing sometimes ranting but mostly raving about all pop culture inside and outside of the TARDIS. 
But yeah, we always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40 and whichever side of that CVE that you decide that you're staying on, safe trip. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to these other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, discussing the latest in entertainment pop culture. Blood of Kings, Immortals Take Notice, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theaters, where we celebrate our favorite movies. Time Warp, the fandom flashback podcast discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie and TV pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville show. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our show covering the time-traveling Doctor Who universe with host Dan Hadley. Lethal Mullet, an 80s and 90s action film podcast with host Adam P. O'Brien. Also check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast with hosts Scott, Derek, and Nathan. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, a deep dive into the final frontier with hosts Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. And check out our newest shows, The Fandom Show, our monthly fandom podcast network live YouTube exclusive show about the month's hottest topics in fandom, and the FPN True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the related Marvel television and streaming MCU universe, including the connections to the original Marvel comics. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on several platforms. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel to receive notifications of new podcast episodes and live events. You can enjoy all of the Fandom Podcast Network audio podcasts on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find the Fandom Podcast Network on Instagram at Fandom Podcast Network and on Twitter at FanPod Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. A Doctor Who podcast is a space book production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.